Well, friends, the weather is finally turning, and the nights are drawing in, and so in the Worsley household, it has been time uh, to get out the board games. Monopoly and, and Ticket to Ride are our family favorites. Uh, Risk has recently been introduced, indeed this week, amid heartache from my young children and stern looks from my wife. Uh, Dad's ruthless British army has swept through Asia on more than one occasion. I cannot help it. I am incredibly competitive. It is a competitiveness that goes back to early life and indeed to a game called the Game of Life. You may recall it from the 1980s advert, you can be a winner at the game of life. But if you've been spared that irritating TV jingle and have no idea what I'm talking about, let me explain by telling you that the game of life was basically a game where, where you did life. Each plastic peg player would kind of drive around the board in a little car for 30 minutes or so, and in the opening spins, you, you decide what you did at college, and you'd set your salary, and shortly afterwards, you'd stop, and you'd get married, and another little peg would enter your car, and then other pegs if you landed on baby squares. And as the game proceeded, you could, you could pay your taxes. You could even buy fire insurance. Yes, the game was really that exciting. <laughs> and for all of those accomplishments, and every time you passed payday, you would receive X amount of paper money until at the end of the game, you would reach quote, the day of reckoning square. And then who was the winner? Well, my MB Games 1977 rulebook says that the game ends when the last player reaches bankrupt or millionaire. Count your money. Stock certificate is worth 60000 life insurance 4000 and then the player with the most money wins. The game is now over. The player with the most money wins, the game is now over. Friends, as we start this evening, let me ask you, do you think of yourself as a winner? A winner at the game of life? When you finally land on the day of reckoning square, will, will, will you be the bankrupt or the millionaire? Maybe you were a child when you last played it. Maybe, maybe you hated board games. But either way, does that 1977 rule book describe essentially the two rules that you've been living by? The player with the most money wins. When you die, the game is over. Tonight we find ourselves in Luke's Gospel and chapter 16 and verse 19. Please would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, 
Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Please be seated. Well, tonight, friends, I have six points. Uh, Four are simple truths which Jesus tells us. Uh, Two are applicatory questions which Jesus asks us. Six points, four simple truths, two applicatory questions. And the first point, the first truth is this. Life is short. Life is short. Jesus describes for us here two men two kind of game of life players, and they couldn't be more different. Player one is the ultimate rich man. His counter on the board is purple. For verse 19, he was clothed in purple. And hence, we know right from the start that he is absolutely loaded. Because in the first century, the only way you got purple clothes was if you collected hundreds of marine snails and boiled them for days in leaden vats. That the manpower... And the cost was was absolutely astronomical. And yet this whole man's wardrobe is purple. Moreover, verse 19, we are told that he wore fine linen. That's fine linen underneath. Basically, even his underpants are swanky. And so verse 19 again, he spends every day feasting sumptuously. It's Fleming's prime steakhouse for lunch. And it's the catbird seat on Music Row for dinner. And it's every day. And hence, the rich man drives around the the game of life board just effortlessly. But player two is a different man altogether, for he has no car. His counter on the board is bent and crippled. Indeed, his friends have seemingly just dumped him at the end of this rich man's gated driveway. Verse 20, he is poor, and he is covered with sores. The the passive verb suggests that, that he is too ill to move. And so, verse 21, he is hungry. In fact, he desires to eat what falls from the rich man's table. He dreams of tearing through his trash at Thanksgiving and licking the turkey leftovers. But verse 21, he receives not a scrap from the man in purple, and instead his guard dogs lick him until he is raw with pain. The two players could not be more different. And yet, to me, what is initially most arresting is the shortness of the game that they play. We have barely gotten two sentences into Jesus' story when all of a sudden the game is finished. There was a rich man, there was a poor man, they both died. Life has barely gotten started when it is all over. Accordingly, at Jesus' first sobering reminder, it is that life is short. Well, friends, that is one of the recurring messages of Scripture, Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of our strength, 80, but they are soon gone and we fly away. Or likewise, James 4 that we sang of earlier. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while. We like to think of each year being more solid than the last, but in reality, Our lives are no more solid than the smoke that rises from each set of birthday candles blown out. Life is short, and sadly for some, it is shorter than we hoped. But as a result of that, 
The riches that go with this life are also short. For as we read earlier in in Ecclesiastes 5, as the rich man came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his own hand. The player with the most money wins. It all sounds rather hollow when we remember that the shortness of the game and the fact that our riches here soon have no more value than paper board game money. And yet what is perhaps most striking here, as we compare the game of life rule book with Jesus' rule book, is the fact that when we die, the game is, is not actually over. For in verse 23, we see that the, that the life continues for both of these men. Which brings us to point two this evening. Hell is anguish. Point two, hell is anguish. In verse 22, that the selfish rich man is is buried. We might imagine at a very ornate funeral service for him, lined streets and eulogies from from the famous and the affluent. But his reality, verse 23, is in Hades, the place of the dead for the wicked, essentially hell, and there, verse 23, the, the rich man is in torment, we read. Indeed, verse 24 tells us that he is in need of, of water. He is in anguish. He is in flames. Friends, perhaps you've seen or heard preachers who, who kind of relish such passages. Preachers who thrive on biblical texts which, which speak of hell and, and fire and God's judgment. Well, friends, not this one. For I take no pleasure in painting these awful scenes. They are some of the most fearful in all Scripture. And as I read them this week, I quickly pondered uh, family friends and old neighbors back on Windsor Road in London where we used to live who have as yet not trusted in Christ. Indeed, as I was preparing to preach this, I remembered the theologian Francis Schaeffer who was once asked to stand up and to preach the doctrine of hell But instead, he sat down and kept silent and started to weep. Friends, if we love unbelievers, this passage should cause us to weep. Not because hell is necessarily exactly like this picture in every single detail, but because hell in the Bible is always, always awful. Hell is God's holy justice and His right anger against such selfish people as this. It is always painted as a place, therefore, of unspeakable sorrow, for it is a place apart from God. In essence, hell is is when the gracious gift giver packs up all his good gifts and goes just as he has been asked. Hell is when the king says, Matthew 25, depart from me into eternal fire, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. Hell is where God is not, and therefore a place without any good thing. Every good sight, sound, taste, touch, pleasure are gone. Hell is utter anguish. And we know this to be true. Why? Well, certainly not because I say so, but rather because hell is described here and elsewhere by the most truthful and the most loving man of all time. Friends, did you know that of all the people in the Bible, it is the tender and the kind Lord Jesus, the one who welcomes children and heals the blind and and feeds the poor and endures the cross for you and I and for all our selfishness, it is the loving Lord Jesus Christ who speaks of hell the most. 
if we accept Jesus as the loving truth-teller who tells parables about good Samaritans and, and lost sons, we must also accept His loving, truthful parable here. And yet, sadly, in 2020, many don't. If anyone speaks today about hell at all, it is often only in very romantic terms. Indeed, a few years ago, I remember turning on later with Jules Holland. It's a kind of British version of The Tonight Show. And they're playing what was an amazingly talented band from New York called The Duke and the King. And from their album, Nothing Gold Can Stay, which, which summarizes this parable so well, they nevertheless sang with joy the sad lyrics, In the morning when I get to hell, the devil will take me up in his Ferris wheel and show me all the scenes below, tapping a tic-tac on his black high heel with all his pretty ones dancing in the fire. Throughout the centuries, hell has been accepted as the place of anguish. Today, if it's accepted at all, it is the place of amusement, where Ferris wheels turn and people sing and dance. The somber truth from the lips of the loving Lord Jesus is that life is short and that hell is anguish. And yet also, thirdly and wonderfully, that heaven is comfort. Truth three, heaven is comfort. Player one, the, the rich man is buried and, and he goes to hell, verse 23. But player two, the poor man, verse 22, dies and is carried by angels to Abraham's side. The, the reversal in fortunes is now perfectly completed. The, the, the rich Jewish man who once dined decadently is now desperate for a drink. And the poor Jewish man who once dug in dumpsters is now dining daily. Or verse 22, the poor man is at Abraham's side. Literally, if you look at your notes there, literally at Abraham's bosom, which sounds quite odd to us. But you see, as a first century man, you'd rest on another man's bosom when laying down for a great banquet. There's no social distancing at restaurants and a feast was a really affectionate affair. And so the picture here is a once starved man dining next to the great father Abraham. Indeed, as Abraham beautifully confirms in verse 25, now he is comforted here. And why is the poor man comforted? Why is it what well, it's tempting to think that some kind of karma is an operation here? To read this story in a very uh, Buddhist or, or Hindu way. The rich man had a good life, and it's his turn for the bad. The poor man has a bad life, now it's his time for the good. But Jesus will not let us read it this way. For did you notice that the, unlike the rich man, and unlike actually every other character in Jesus' parables, the poor man has a name, Lazarus. And his name means God helps me. Or in God, I trust. And so can you see this, this poor man is not comforted in heaven because he has nothing on earth. This poor man is comforted in heaven because he had nothing on earth but God. Lazarus is not trusting in God in order to get comfort in this life. God was his comfort in this life. And so God becomes wonderfully his comfort in death too. One minute he lies at the rich man's gate. He's starving and poor and dog-licked and sore and abscess-ridden and all alone. 
But the next minute, angels are carrying him home to feast with the famous forever. And his short-term discomfort only accentuates the, 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 the gravity of his final comfort. Friends, for every frightful glance we are to make at hell, we must make as many joyous glances to heaven. For the reality of the comfort of heaven here is really as glorious as the reality of hell is awful. And maybe, maybe my poor and weary fellow Lazaruses, my gobbed helped, Jesus-trusting friends, maybe you just need reminding of that this evening. That though life of late has been something akin to this poor man, that soon you shall experience all the riches of heaven. That though other people have heartlessly left you at earthly gates to suffer by yourself and not given you the scraps that you've begged for, that soon you will be welcomed into heavenly comfort. And that though you may have had the most painful or lonely thanksgiving, that soon you shall reside in the bosom of God and in the bosom of all those friends who trusted God too, those who went before you who also now sit around that table. My fellow Lazaruses, remember, heaven is comfort. And so where have we gotten to? Life is short. Hell is anguish. Heaven is comfort. And final, simple truth, point four, eternal life is fixed. Eternal life is fixed. Now, staggeringly, as we can see, even in hell, that the rich man still treats Lazarus snobbishly. He does not repent before Abraham for all his sin. He does not apologize to Lazarus for all his cruelty towards him. Instead, he tells Abraham to send Lazarus for water like some insignificant bellboy. But in verse 26, we discover that even if that were appropriate, it is just not possible. For look at verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, as we read this, we must be very careful. I don't think that Jesus wants us to conclude here that, that those in hell can literally see and, and speak to those in heaven and vice versa. However, we are to understand very clearly that, 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 that eternal life is fixed and that once we die, we, we shall be judged and then heaven or hell will be our home forever. If we have repented of our wrongdoing and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we shall enjoy a heavenly forever, if not the home of hell awaits. For in this real game of life, the, the pieces are not simply packed away at the end. There is no misaturned square of purgatory. There's no go round the board again reincarnation. Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and then face judgment. In a century or so, everyone in this room will be in one place or the other, and it shall be irreversible. Because as Abraham says to the rich man, verse 26, the chasm between you and us is great. These places of eternal residence are fixed. The permanence is terribly sobering, but it is a permanence that is no less real. And yet, it is a reality that 
Sadly, often you and I forget. For we are taught every day in, in this modern world that, that our life here and now is, is fixed. Indeed, the more successful and, and often the richer we are in this life, the more we actually talk in those terms. We talk about coming from a, a stable home, having been rooted in a solid education. After college, we declare, I, I'm settling in this city. We buy a house and we say, we've managed to complete. We've got the fixed mortgage too because his job is permanent now because the college will soon give her tenure. Riches and successes often buy us more tent pegs to hammer into this earth, but they often come at the cost of forgetting that we are mere campers. One man who understood this temptation very well was an English preacher by the name of Henry Smith. He was famed in the 1500s for speaking to the, the successful and the rich of his day. Henry Smith's church was built right outside the, the most affluent area of London in central Westminster. And his congregation was made up almost entirely of, of lords who lived as though this life was fixed. And so in one famous sermon on Psalm 82, Smith uh, turned them back to reality and said this, Many of you would live a merry life and feast and let the world slide. The remembrance of death and eternity is merely like a damp which makes you rub and frown and whine as if a mere moat were in your eye. You which glitter like angels, mighty and gracious lords, I will tell you what your honor shall become. First you shall wax old like others. Then you shall fall sick like others. Then you shall die like others, then you shall be buried like others, then you shall be judged like others. Even like the beggars, which cry out at your gates, one sickens, the other sickens, one dies, the other dies, one rots, the other rots. Look in the grave and show me which was the rich man and which was Lazarus. They which crowed over others and looked down upon them like oaks, others shall soon walk upon them like worms and they shall be gone as if they had never been. Eternal life, not this life, is forever. Life here is short. Hell is anguish. Heaven is comfort. Eternal life is fixed. And so how are we to apply those four simple truths that Jesus teaches us clearly? Well, in many senses, I think that if we stare at them, they would solve many of our, our big problems in life, wouldn't they? Or if you meditated upon them for, for long enough, how many questions about who we should marry or what house we should purchase or how much we should care about politics or, or what type of church we should go to would begin to be answered by these four simple points. And yet in context, in Luke 16, Jesus employs these four points to challenge the crowd in, in, in two particular ways. For the first question that Jesus asks here, particularly to those who would call themselves his followers, is, will you open your gate and share your riches? Will you open your gate and share your riches? The key backdrop to this parable, yet again, is, is money. So one of the surprises for me as I've taught through this parable series with Matt, so many of them are, are on the theme of riches. 
And yet again, we have to see that the riches in themselves are not evil. After all, Abraham here is in heaven. and He was one of the richest men in the Bible. And yet many Christians often make that, that, that subtle mistake here. Instead, friends, we must see that the poor man does not go to heaven because he is poor, but because his name is Lazarus, because he trusts God, because God is his comfort and his help. Likewise, we must see that the rich man does not go to hell because he is rich, but rather because his name defines him too, because he trusts riches. Riches are his comfort and his ultimate help. And in context, this, this problem is all too apparent. For look back with me to verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 14, he continues, But the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Can you see the relationship between money and God? Can you see the connection between cash and Christ? If we love riches, if we serve riches, if we find our comfort in riches, if we find our joy in, in collecting all the paper money as we, as we drive around the, the, the game of life board, Jesus will eventually become a joke to us. Finally, we will despise him. And though we may not sneer like the Pharisees did, God knows our hearts. And so how? How do we discern our own hearts on this topic? Well, as always, as believers reading these parables, we are to carefully consider whether we really belong to the kingdom or not, whether we are really more like the kingdom type or, or the kingdom anti-type. The rich man, as we've already seen, looked for the best in this life. He wore the best in this life. He, he ate the best in this life. But far more significantly, I, I think his heart was not moved by the worst in this life. On earth, the rich man saw Lazarus every day, and yet he pressed the security gates, and he roared past him to park his convertible. He even evidently knows Lazarus by name, and yet his fridge was always, always close to him, and his scraps were unshared because his heart strings were all tied up with this life. And so, friends, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you exactly what clothes and what restaurants constitute being the rich man. I'm not even going to tell you exactly where your driveway extends and exactly what your scraps could be. This sermon is not a blunt denouncement of white picket fences or security alarms. It's not a call to give to, to every panhandler or to ensure that no food in your house is ever thrown away. But it is a call to check our hearts. Do we really care? Do we really care about those right at our gate? Yes, the poor person who lives physically close to us, but firstly, the Lazaruses in our own local church who have need. And hence, an unseen regular giving to this church, some of which goes to other members in need. And secondly, those fellow Lazaruses around the world who really do experience what this poor man suffers here. Brothers and sisters in Christ 
who can be supported online, those who are digitally just at the end of our drive, and those who we probably should feel more of a pull towards than an unbeliever on the other side of America. And friends, if you find that hard work hard, if you're not really sure where to begin, maybe, maybe your prayer this week could be that of one rich minister called Samuel Heron, who prayed regularly in the 17th century this. O Lord, let not my eyes be dazzled, or my heart be bewitched with the glory and sweetness of these worldly treasures. Draw my affections to the love of those durable riches. Enlarge my affection towards others in my church. Make me rich and fruitful in good works, being a father to the poor and causing the heart of the widow to rejoice, warming the heart of the naked with the fleece of my sheep, not eating my meals alone and never hiding myself from my own family. For why should I make my gold my hope? Why should I strive to laden myself with this thick clay, still plotting to set my nest on high when all I have or can have is in a moment turned into vanity? Quicken me up, therefore, to good duties, that the hearts of your saints may be comforted by me. Do you have a Samuel here on heart or a heart more like the rich man? The stakes are high. Jesus asks you and me, will you open your gate and share your riches? But also, final point, Second question that Jesus asks here in, in light of life being short and hell being anguish and heaven being comfort and eternal life being fixed, will you open your ears? Will you open your ears and see his resurrection? Will you open your ears and see his resurrection? Verse 27, look down with me. We're almost done. Verse 27, and the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In the context of this parable, there is something else really important going on here in Luke 16. For the Pharisees not only have a deadly heart attitude towards riches, but the Pharisees have a deadly heart attitude towards God's Word. For in verse 16, look back and notice how Jesus finally puts the spotlight not on their bank accounts, but on their interaction with the Bible. Verse 16, John the Baptist has been preaching the good news of God's kingdom, and people everywhere are coming in. But in a sense, it is exactly the same message that the law and, and, and the prophets of the Old Testament spoke. For verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than from one dot of the law to become void. In short, Jesus says to these Pharisees, whether you listen to the, the popular music of the day, whether you listen to the popular music of John the Baptist, or whether you read classical pieces in Old Testament Scripture, the glorious music of the kingdom can now be heard. Repent and trust in me today before it is too late. 
And so can you see what is ultimately warned of a few verses later through this analogy with the rich man? The rich man cries out in verse 27, please, Lazarus, please send Lazarus to warn my family of hell. But Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have been given enough. They have Bibles on their bedside tables, and they have preachers who open God's Word to them every Sunday. Let them open their ears. My friends, can you see, ultimately, it was by not listening to the Word of God that this rich man's life was settled in this life and the next. Ultimately, it was by not listening to God's Word that this man's life was settled in this life and the next. For the rich man read the rule book of the game of life. The player with the most money wins. When you die, the game is over. And so he refused to read God's rule book for life. The player who repents and believes in Jesus wins. When you die, the game has only just begun. And so to those who perhaps assume the kingdom, let me ask you, who's Whose rule book are you really listening to? What are your ears tuned into most of the time? Do you listen hard to the Bible? You have been preached to this evening. You have God's word open in your hands. You have been warned about the shortness of life the anguish of hell, the comfort of heaven, that the fact that eternal life is fixed. What else would convince you to repent of sin and turn to trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps like this rich man and like the Pharisees, you're someone who's still looking for a sign. Perhaps like the rich man in verse 30, you protest, if only I saw, if only I could see something, if only something miraculous could happen, if only someone would come back from the dead then I would repent and believe. Well, let me challenge you. As Abraham challenges the rich man, would you really? Verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Of course, Abraham is proved entirely right. For the brothers of this metaphorical rich man are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees do see someone rise from the dead. Ironically, they saw a man called Lazarus rise from the dead in John 11. And just a few chapters' time in Luke's gospel, they will see the one who preaches to them now rise from the dead eternally. And yet still, they will not be convinced such that they may drive on around the board pretending to be the winners of the game of life. And so, friends, I ask you, as I ask myself, who are you here? Are you a Lazarus? Or are you a deaf relative of the rich man? Will you open your ears to hear what Jesus is saying? Will you open your eyes to see his resurrection from the dead recorded in the pages of history in the book that you hold now? such that you too may repent and rise to that wonderful heavenly comfort? Or will riches 
and the rule book of this fleeting world keep determining how you play this game. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are shaken by your loving Son's truth and his story. For we not only see the shortness of our lives, but before us two eternal realities. In many senses, we stand on the the brink of heaven or hell. And we thank you that our hope can be in your Son. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we thank you that very soon we may feast in comfort because Christ rose from the dead. Father, for those who trust the riches of this world, Father, we pray that you would warn them such that they may not starve, but they may come. In Jesus' name we pray.